Well, welcome everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Glad, glad that you're here tonight. Um, for those of you that don't know, my name is Bill uh, Robertson, and uh, Corey asked me to, to lead the study tonight, and I'm glad he's here <laughs> as, our, as our resident uh, person who was way more immersed in this uh, study uh, than I am. But let me, let me just uh, read a couple verses from Psalm 119 and pray for us, and then we'll, uh, we'll begin. This is Psalm 119, uh, just a a couple of verses that relate to to God's words to us. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. And then the one that you're familiar with, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws. Father, we, uh, we are humbled at the thought that uh, you have uh, come down to us, that you have revealed yourself to us in so many different ways. You've revealed yourself to us through the beautiful world that you've made. You've revealed yourself to us through your son Jesus, and you have revealed yourself to us through the words of this book. And so we, uh, we come before them with gratitude. We come before them with humility. And, uh, and I pray tonight as we uh, gather together around this book of Revelation, which uh, for many of us over the years has been, uh, if, if not perplexing, even troubling. <laughs> and uh, so we, we gather around it tonight together uh, and ask for the guidance and the presence of the Holy Spirit in all of our hearts to help us in our understanding, to enlighten us. And uh, again, thank you for your, for your great love for us and your touch on all of our lives these things in Jesus name amen. amen well I think it might have been uh, even way back June maybe before I left for Colorado I don't know Corey uh, invited me to coffee and um, wondered if I would be interested in helping him to lead a study of the book of Revelation <laughs> well I have to tell you that my reaction was not very positive <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it was it was at least uh, very hesitant, uh, and I said, "Well, <laughs> I guess I'll have to think about that." But uh, but then he introduced me to a couple of different commentaries, and uh, uh, I, I started to to read and to think about it, and uh, was was encouraged, uh, was um, actually very intrigued by uh, by a, a very different kind of a perspective than than the one uh, that I had grown up with. Now, those of you that have been a part of the study. Uh, You've already been introduced to this idea that um, many of us came to the Book of Revelation through what's been called dispensational theology, and, and we talked a little bit about that and how the the interpretation of the Book of Revelation that comes through that grid uh, focuses on uh, sort of a predictive aspect, a predictive interpretation, and, and uh, looking at the end time, so to speak, and and, and, a, and a sort of uh, what would be the right word? Almost a almost a scary kind of a scenario for us, right? And uh, and so um, we we've seen that 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 approach. There there are some negative aspects of that. It really doesn't take into account some of the, uh, I guess you might say, accepted uh, hermeneutical biblical interpretation principles uh, that look at the context and the genre and the audience to which 
the, the, the words were first written to help us to understand it and really kind of set those aside and just sort of dove in. And uh, so we, we don't want to be um, dismissive. I, I, I told you that I have a copy, and I brought it along as Exhibit A, if anybody's interested. This is an authentic Schofield reference Bible. But I, I showed it to Corey, and I said, you got to be nice, though, because it's my mom's name. Is here. So, so if anybody's interested in, in looking at that, I mean, it's you know black leather Bible with a you know, red marker, and so that's, that's the real deal right there. That's what I grew up with. And I found, I found it interesting even thinking about that today. Now, now my mom, particularly my dad, uh, my dad was a Presbyterian pastor, and he was, a, he was a staunch Reformed theologian, and don't hold it against me, I have some leanings in that direction myself. But, but I found it interesting, um, I, I think it would be easy for us to make the assumption that Dispensational theology uh, had an influence only in very conservative, uh, maybe fundamentalist, we might say, Baptist churches or, or, or such. But it really had, had a wider influence than that. Because, as I said, my parents were both uh, staunch. Uh, well, I'll tell you how staunch they, they were. My younger brother is named John Calvin Robertson. So. <laughs> He's no longer alive, so I can, I can say his name. <laughs> so that's, that's, the, that's the, uh, the context that I grew up in and, and still uh, was influenced uh, by dispensational theology. And, and I was interested, even recently, and, and my daughter Hannah is here tonight, so I'm glad to have, have Hannah here. Um, my, my younger daughter, Leah, uh, told me, as I told her I was helping with the study of Revelation, her eyes kind of got big, and, and she remembered uh, in, a, in a youth group, in a church that I was in, and it was like, I didn't know that they were teaching you that. <laughs> uh, she was in a youth group, and I think, it was, uh, I think it was in Estes Park, Colorado, it would have been at a Baptist General Conference church, and, and they did the left behind, and she just remembers just being terribly frightened by it. That uh, that viewpoint on Revelation. So anyway, that's that's even more current than than me. So uh, at any rate, that's uh, that's sort of. Uh, I think it's important for us to to be reminded of that as we as we look into this again tonight, especially for those of you that maybe are kind of new to, to the study to to recognize that we are coming at Revelation from a, from a quite a quite a bit of different perspective. I would say maybe even a 180-degree different perspective than, uh, than that dispensational theology. Now, did, did all of you get a, a handout for the notes for tonight? No. Oh, okay. Um, I think what we'll do is just say a few more things, um, say a few more things just in review, and then uh, and then Corey has a has a, a part of a video uh, that's introductory in nature that is very helpful, and we'll we'll look at that. Uh, also, want to just give, point your attention uh, to the map up here. I don't know if you noticed that when you came in, but as we get to the part of our gathering tonight where we're going to look at the messages to the seven churches. Uh, I don't know about you, I, I love maps, and I, and I find it very interesting to, to look at a, this is a modern day map of Turkey, to show where these, these cities actually are. I mean, you could go to those cities today if you wanted to travel to Turkey now. I don't know 
why you want to travel to Turkey, but maybe somebody would want to travel to Turkey. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so let's let's look just for uh, a few moments uh, at, at this review. Uh, I just made a few comments about the influence of dispensational theology, which we really have we've talked quite a lot about that in the first uh, two sessions. Um, many important principles of traditional biblical interpretation were ignored. Uh, Revelation was treated differently than most other books of the Bible, uh, sort of ignoring genre and context and just diving right into uh, some assumptions that were being made and, and interpreting the, the book through those assumptions rather than in a more traditional way. Uh, I think we also talked about a misunderstanding of the word apocalypse. I, I think if we, if we think of the word apocalypse in the normal way that we use that word, we, we think of something catastrophic and uh, something, some big event happening. And, uh, and really, the, the word apocalypse just speaks about revealing, and uh, thus the book Revelation. Is, it's, uh, it's an apocalyptic book, uh, like Daniel, Ezekiel, and, uh, and some other places in the Bible as well. Uh, also, and, and I think Corey gave uh, you some of these, uh, important to, for us to keep in front of us uh, and, and I'm certain that, and I don't know whether it'll happen tonight, it's, at some point we're going to get into some conversation about more about these characteristics of, of Babylon or characteristics of empire. Um, the, the, the word Babylon is, is used in the book of Revelation to refer uh, to, to Rome uh, and to, to Babylon because he's writing to a Jewish audience and people remembering that the Jews were exiles in Babylon, but but, but it's more than that. And, and, and I think it's going to be helpful for us to keep that in our minds as we, as we think about the cultural uh, real-time relevance that the book of Revelation has for us today uh, as we think about empire, even as it relates to our own country, and, and, and to, to be open to the possibility that you know, it's, it's okay to, to not always think of, of America as being the good guy, <laughs> uh, that there may be some characteristics and so, and again, we'll probably get into that more. But there, there were seven uh, and a handout that uh, Corey gave us, I think, last week. Uh, and this is from Scott McKnight's book um, called Revelation for, for the Rest of Us. <laughs> uh, characteristics of Babylon. Uh, Anti-God, uh, opulent, murderous, concerned with image, militaristic, economically exploitive, Exploitative and arrogant, and uh, those were thoughtful insights. I, I felt to, uh, and and those will those will come out to us, come out for us as we get ourselves into the text and, and, and see those characteristics that that the that the church that the churches that were being addressed were 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 living with, living under in, in many respects. So. Again, uh, the importance of understanding the characteristics of Babylon. And then I thought it was important, and I don't remember, I think Corey talked a little bit about this last week, but to talk about, just in a general way, the purpose of the book of Revelation. Uh, I, think it was, I think it was Gorman, uh, I'm not sure which author it was, Gorman or McKnight, that talked about the, the book being, being pastoral. Uh, if you think of... Um, Pastor being a person that can bring encouragement and comfort to people when they're going through hard times, the revelation is revelation is pastoral in nature. Uh, it's also prophetic in nature, N not prophetic in the sense of 
talking about predicting the future, but prophetic in offering words of challenge and, and even exhortation to, to people, and, and, and more in the sense of forth-telling rather than in the sense of foretelling. Uh, and then it's also theopolitical. Now, I had, to, I had to think a little bit about theopolitical. Theo obviously has to do with God, um, politics, and may, maybe it's to, to think about uh, having our politics be subservient to God rather than vice versa. <laughs> Would that be a good way of thinking about how Revelation is theopolitical in nature? Uh, so uh, that's important as well. Now, and then there's a quote there that comes directly out of uh, the main book that we've been looking at to help us in our understanding of Revelation. The purpose of the book of Revelation is to persuade its hearers and readers, both ancient and contemporary, to remain faithful to God in spite of past, present, and possible future suffering. That's a, that's a helpful statement for yeah. us to have in front of us, and, yeah. and maybe to return back to as, as we continue to read and to think about uh, what Revelation is, is bringing to us. Um, and then, th- and this statement also comes um, from Gorman, uh, the purpose of the revelation of revelation is to move the church toward creating, and I and I like this statement. I told Corey this today. I don't know if he grabbed onto it as much as I did, but many cultures of life as alternatives to the empire's culture of death. You know, we as Americans are all about mega, <laughs> right? We're all about bigger and better, and so there's something that caught my attention about. Many, small, which is what we can be. We, we can we here at, at Wake Park can be a mini culture of life, in in the midst of in many ways being surrounded by a, a culture of death, and, and and it's not that we look at that culture and shake our finger at them and be condemning of whatever we see as a as a culture of death, but we can we can be a culture of life, a mini culture of life right in the midst of. Where we are living, and so I think that's a that's a helpful um, a statement to have in front of us as well. So, why don't we look at that um, that little statement, to kind of a review of the book? And, okay. Uh, and then... um, you guys have seen Bible Project videos before. Um, this is uh, the summary of <coughs> chapters one through eleven, and it goes really fast. So. <laughs> If you need to go back, you can just go right on the Bible Project website, and you can watch it as many times as you want. (laughs) (laughs) The book of the Revelation of Jesus. The author of this book, which is not called Revelations, by the way, is named at the beginning. It was written by John, which could refer to the beloved disciple who wrote the gospel and the letters of John, or it could be a different John, a messianic Jewish prophet who traveled about and taught in early church. Whichever John it was, he makes clear in the opening paragraph what kind of book he has written. He calls it, first of all, a revelation, or apocalypse. The Greek word is apokalypsis, and it refers to a type of literature very familiar to John's readers from the Hebrew scriptures and from other popular Jewish texts. Apocalypse has recounted a prophet's symbolic dreams and visions that revealed God's heavenly perspective on history and current events so that the present could be viewed in light of history's final outcome. And John says this apocalypse is a prophecy, which means it's a word from God spoken through a prophet to God's people, usually to warn or comfort them in a time of crisis. 
By calling this book a prophecy, John's saying that it stands in the tradition of the biblical prophets and is bringing their message to a climax. And this apocalyptic prophecy was sent to real people that John knew. The book opens and closes as a circular letter that was sent to seven churches in the ancient Roman province of Asia. Now, seven is a meaningful number for John. It's a symbol of completeness based on the seven-day Sabbath cycle in the Old Testament. And John has woven sevens into every single part of this book. Now, with this opening, John has given us clear guidance about how he wants us to understand this book. Jewish apocalypse is communicated through symbolic imagery and numbers. It is not a secret predictive code about the timing of the end of the world. Rather, John is constantly using these symbols that are drawn from the Old Testament, and he expects his readers to go discover what the symbols mean by looking up the text he's alluding to. Also, the fact that it's a letter means that John is actually addressing the situation of these first century churches. And so while this book has much to say to Christians of later generations, the book's meaning must first be anchored in the historical context of John's time, place, and audience. Which brings us into the book's first section, Jesus' message to the seven churches. John was exiled on the island of Patmos, and he saw a vision of the risen Jesus, exalted as king of the world. And he was standing among seven burning lights. And John's told this is a symbol of the seven churches in Asia Minor that's been adapted from the book of the prophet Zechariah. And Jesus starts addressing the specific problems that face each church. Some were apathetic due to wealth and affluence. Others were morally compromised. Their people were still eating ritual meals and sleeping around in pagan temples. But others among the churches remained faithful to Jesus, and they were suffering harassment and even violent persecution. And Jesus warns that things are going to get worse. A tribulation is upon the churches that will force them to choose between compromise or faithfulness. By John's day, the murder of Christians by the Roman Emperor Nero was passed, and the persecution of Christians by Emperor Domitian was likely underway. And so the temptation was to deny Jesus, either to avoid persecution or simply to join the spirit of the Roman age. And Jesus calls them to faithfulness so that they can overcome, or literally conquer, and Jesus promises a reward for everyone in these churches who does conquer. Each reward is drawn directly from the book's final vision about the marriage of heaven and earth. And so this opening section, it sets up the main plot tension that will drive the storyline in this book. Will Jesus' people endure? Will they inherit the new world that God has in store? And why is faithfulness to Jesus described as conquering? The rest of the book is John's answer. After this, John has a vision of God's heavenly throne room. And he describes it with imagery drawn from many Old Testament prophets. Surrounding God are creatures and elders that represent all creation and human nations. And they're giving honor and allegiance to the one true creator God who is holy, holy, holy. In God's hand is a scroll that's closed up with seven wax seals. It symbolizes the message of the Old Testament prophets and the sealed scroll of Daniel's visions. These are all about how God's kingdom will come here fully on earth as in heaven. But, it turns out, no one is able to open the scroll. Until John hears of someone who can. It's the lion from the tribe of Judah and the root of David. He can open it. These are classic Old Testament descriptions of the Messianic king, who would bring God's kingdom through military conquest. Now, that's what John hears. But then what he turns and sees is not an aggressive lion king, but a sacrificed bloody lamb who's alive, standing there, and ready to open the scroll. Now, this symbol of Jesus as the slain lamb, this is crucially important for understanding the book. John's saying that the Old Testament promise of God's future victorious kingdom was inaugurated through the crucified Messiah. 
Jesus overcame his enemies by dying for them as the true Passover lamb so that they could be redeemed. Because of the resurrection, Jesus' death on the cross was not a defeat. It was his enthronement. It was the way he conquered evil. And so this vision concludes with the lamb alongside the one sitting on the throne. And together they are worshipped as the one true creator and redeemer. And the slain lamb begins to open the scroll. It's a symbol of his divine authority to guide history to its conclusion. Which brings us to the next section of the book, the three cycles of seven. Seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And each cycle depicts God's kingdom and justice coming here on earth as in heaven. Now, some people think that the three sets of seven divine judgments represent a literal, linear sequence of events that either happened in the past, or could be happening now, or are yet to happen in the future when Jesus returns. But notice how John has woven all the sevens together. So the final seven bowls come out of the seventh trumpet and the seventh seal. And the seven trumpets emerge from the seventh seal. They're like nesting dolls. Each seventh contains the next seven. Also notice how each of the series of seven culminates in the final judgment, and they have matching conclusions. So it's more likely that John is using each set of seven to depict the same period of time between Jesus' resurrection and future return from three different perspectives. So the slain lamb begins to open the scroll's first four seals, and John sees four horsemen. It's an image from the book of Zechariah chapter 1, and they symbolize times of war, conquest, famine, and death. In other words, a tragically average day in human history. Then the fifth seal depicts the murdered Christian martyrs before God's heavenly throne. And the cry of their innocent blood rises up before God like smoke from the altar of incense. And they're told to rest because more Christians are yet to die. We're not told why, but we are told that it won't last forever. The sixth seal is God's ultimate response to their cry. He brings the great day of the Lord that was described in Isaiah and Joel and the people of the earth cry out, who is able to stand? And then all of a sudden, John pauses the action with an intermission to answer that question. John sees an angel with a signet ring coming to place a mark of protection on God's servants who are enduring all this hardship. And he hears the number of those who were sealed, 144,000. It's a military census, like the one in the book of Numbers, chapter 1. There are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, pay attention. The number of this army is what John heard, just like he heard about the conquering lion of Judah. But in both cases, what he then turned and saw was the surprising fulfillment of those military images in Jesus, the slain lamb. So when he sees this messianic army of God's kingdom, it's made up of people from all nations, fulfilling God's ancient promise to Abraham. It's this multi-ethnic army of the Lamb who can stand before God because they've been redeemed by the Lamb's blood. And now they are called to conquer, not by killing their enemies, but by suffering and bearing witness just like the Lamb. After this, the seventh and final seal is broken. But before the scroll is opened, the seven warning trumpets emerge and fire is taken from the incense altar. It symbolizes the cry of the martyrs and it's cast onto the earth, bringing the day of the Lord to its completion. Now, with the seven trumpets, John backs up and he retells the story again, this time with images from the Exodus story. So the first five trumpet blasts replay the plague sent upon Egypt, and then the sixth trumpet releases the four horsemen that came from the first four seals. But then John tells us that despite all these plagues, the nations did not repent, just like Pharaoh didn't in the Exodus story. So it seems that God's judgment alone will not bring people to humble repentance before him. Then John pauses the action again with another intermission. 
An angel brings the unsealed scroll that was opened by the Lamb. And just like Ezekiel, John is told to eat the scroll and then proclaim its message to the nations. Finally, the Lamb scroll is open, and now we will discover how God's kingdom will come here on earth. The scroll's content is spelled out in two symbolic visions. First, John sees God's temple and the martyrs by the altar, and he's told to measure and set them apart. It's an image of protection taken from Zechariah chapter 2. But then the outer courts in the city are excluded, and they get trampled down by the nations. Now, some think that this refers literally to a destruction of Jerusalem that happened in the past or will happen in the future. But more likely, John's following the tradition of Jesus and the apostles, who all used the new temple as a symbol for God's new covenant people. In that case, this is an image about how Jesus' followers may suffer persecution by the nations, but this external defeat cannot take away their victory through the land. This idea gets expanded in the scroll's second vision. God appoints two witnesses as prophetic representatives to the nations. Once again, some people think this refers literally to two prophets who will appear one day in the future. But John calls them lampstands, which is one of his clear symbols for the churches. So this vision is more likely about the prophetic role of Jesus' followers, who are to take up the mantle of Moses and Elijah and to call idolatrous nations and rulers to turn back to the one true God. But then, all of a sudden, a horrible beast appears. Let the reader remember Daniel chapter 7. And the beast conquers the witnesses and kills them. But then, God brings them back to life and vindicates the witnesses before their persecutors. And the end result is that many among the nations finally do repent and give glory to the Creator God in the day of the Lord. Now, stop. Think about the story so far. God's warning judgments through the seals and through the trumpets did not generate repentance among the nations, just like the Exodus plagues only hardened Pharaoh's heart. But the Lamb, he conquered his enemies by loving them, dying for them. And now the message of the Lamb's scroll reveals the mission of his army, the church. God's kingdom will be revealed when the nations see the church imitating the loving sacrifice of the Lamb, not killing their enemies, but dying for them. It is God's mercy shown through Jesus' followers that will bring the nations to repentance. And this surprising claim is the message of the open scroll that John has placed at the exact center of the entire book. After this, the last trumpet sounds and the nations are shaken as God's kingdom comes here on earth as it is in heaven. So now we know how the church will bear witness to the nations and inherit the new creation, but who is that terrible beast that waged war on God's people? And how will the whole story turn out? John will tell us in the second half of the book of the Revelation. It all makes sense now. My old... Uh... 486 processors. (laughs) (laughs) That's good, though. I mean, we'll have to we'll have to hear that again. (laughs) Well, let's. um, If if you have your Bibles, uh, why don't why don't we open them to the Book of Revelation? I know you all have been waiting anxiously for that for that to happen against all of this uh, background. And uh, let, let's take a, a little bit uh, to just to look at, we're going to look at chapters uh, 1 through 3, uh, and you're going to be involved in, a, in an exercise together when we get to um, the, seven, the messages to the seven churches. So let's just take a, a few minutes looking at some of the highlights of, this, of the, uh, the prologue and the opening vision, uh, which are found obviously beginning in chapter 1, 
uh, the, the prologue and the, and the greeting and the doxology we want to look at, and then a, little, a, a couple of things I want to point out in the, in the opening vision. Um, one, one verse in particular that I think is important for us to look at, uh, again, our, our author uh, looks at verse 3 as sort of an interpretive key uh, to all the book of Revelation. And verse 3 says, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. So I take that to mean us as well, because we're hearing it. <laughs> so we, we are going to be blessed as we hear it and, uh, and read it. Some of you are reading it, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've read through yeah. it once. <laughs> I can't wait to get to some of those other parts that are like, wow, I don't even know what to do with all of that. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but it'll be interesting to see how that fits together. But we, uh, we are going to be hearing it and reading it and uh, taking it to heart to see how it applies uh, to us. Then the next part is, uh, is obviously a greeting. It, it says right there that what, what the, who the letter is to, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Uh, he gives a standard greeting to them, which we see in many of the epistles, to Paul's epistles, where he, he greets the, the churches. And uh, then he goes on, and there's a, a beautiful doxology there in verse 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, and the Almighty. And so that's... Uh, that again is the uh, is the the prologue, the greeting, the doxology, the the first uh, vision. Then uh, I also wanted to point out, um, you know, we, we've talked a lot about, and this is a, and one example of that. We've talked a lot about how um, dispensational theology sort of forces an interpretation on it. Um, many dispensational theology people would look at verse nineteen as the interpretive key. Uh, to the book of Revelation. Verse 19 says, Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. And so that's where the the notion of looking at Revelation as what predicting the future comes from. And so they kind of locked in on that verse as the as the interpretive key. Which is interesting because, you know, verse 3 really is a much more uh, general kind of a, of a statement than, than that is. And so it's just kind of an interesting contrast. Um, a couple of things that I want I wanted you uh, to, to notice um, uh, some some cross references here uh, in in the in the first vision um, that John received starting in verse twelve it says I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me and when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands and remember what he talked about the seven golden lampstands represent the churches right the churches yep. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. So you're seeing this vision of someone among the churches, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face is like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. Now, I want to do a couple of cross-references here. Uh, if you would flip over into the book of Daniel, chapter 7. 
And would, would someone, when they find that, read verses 9 through 14 with that vision of Jesus that John is talking about that we just read, having that in your mind as you hear these words from Daniel 7, 9 through 14. Is it Daniel 7? Yeah, Daniel 7, 9 through 14. Uh, this is from RSV. As I looked, thrones were placed, and one that was ancient of days took his seat. His raiment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came forth before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment. And the books were open. Yeah, read a little, read a little bit yeah, more. Sorry. Um, I looked then because of the sound of great words which the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was slain and the body and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold... With the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom to all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and my, then the visions of my had alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the of the things. Yeah, that, that's good. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So, so very interesting, right? Mm -hmm. To 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 see the uh, the clear parallel, even though it isn't an exact quotation from the book of Daniel. John is clearly referring to that and and connecting. His, the vision of Jesus that he is sharing with what was revealed in the Old Testament, which really helps us to see the continuity of, of Scripture and, and, and the flow of that. And then another image that, that I, I found very striking uh, in verse 16, this is back in Revelation, uh, in Revelation 1, 16, it says, In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. Now, anyone call to mind a New Testament cross-reference to that? Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4. There we go. Hebrews 4. Thank you. You get to read that. You got that? <laughs> Hebrews 4, I think it's... Uh, yeah, 4.12. Yeah. The word of God is living in you. Hebrews, Hebrews 4.12, I'm sorry. Hebrews 4.12. Thank you. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Great imagery. <clears throat> and... Uh, you know, you 
we often think about, and, and rightfully so, when we hear the word, we think of the word. You know, of course, Jesus is the word as well. But uh, certainly we've heard testimony recently uh, about uh, the power of the word <laughs> being sharp to speak directly into our hearts, <laughs> right? Uh, I, I certainly have experienced that. I wish I had experienced it more, but there are times when, you know, the, the word just is like that. I mean, it just yeah. it, it, it cuts us open. <laughs> it, it exposes us. You know, light light is, is both a... It's both a revealer, but it's also it also exposes things as well, right? It bring it brings to light things that are hidden, and uh, that's that's what uh, is being spoken of as it as we think about uh, who and what Jesus is uh, to the church to us. Um, so I think um, any other th- thoughts, questions about the the opening part of the book of Revelation, the the prologue, the greeting, the doxology, and that opening vision. Anything you want to add, Corey, to the conversation? Any questions that anybody has? Wow. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, let's, um, let's move on then, and uh, let's see, I, might, I haven't even looked at my, uh, my notes here. <clears throat> oh, <clears throat> yeah, I'm glad I did. Um, so, and this is, this is <clears throat> again, from, from Gorman. If you look on the back page of the notes there, we just talked about the presence of the Lord Jesus among the church being signified. Uh, well, the lampstands are the churches. Jesus is among the churches. Um, but verse, <clears throat> verse 3, again, being the, the, the key, uh, the interpretive key to Revelation, uh, helps us to think about the prophetic pastoral prophetic function announced uh, that was that was announced there in verse three, and and Gorman talks about the the, the presence of Jesus to the churches being a, a source of security, hope, and discipleship, which I thought were were, were three very helpful categories. Uh, we're going to see as we as we look at the messages to the churches how how, how those those three. Um, um, Roles, functions, uh, Jesus doing that for the churches, are, that those are going to come out to us. Because Jesus is a source of security to us, right? Jesus is certainly a source of hope for us. And, and the notion of discipleship, of, of training, of, of us being apprentices of Jesus, uh, certainly that uh, it, we'll, we'll find that to be present in these messages uh, to the churches as well. Uh, so... <clears throat> I, I'm going to help us engage in a uh, an exercise together. Uh, group think is that kind of a <laughs> a thing we can call this? What I what I want you to do is I want you to number off by seven and remember what number you are, and then you're going to gather with those other numbers, and you're going to be the church in that place. All right? Oh. So number off to seven. One, two, three, four, five. Because one of the things that Corey reminded me about today is that it's important for us to have um, some historical and geographical context uh, to these churches. And I didn't bring 
much of that to light. But I want just to say to all of you a couple things about that, and, and Corey might fill in a little bit. I referenced this just so you know that these places do exist. This is Turkey. This is sort of the west coast of Turkey, and you can see the places that are on the coast that were, that were ports. And uh, I actually had a, a, a class in seminary. It was a New Testament class. I think, I don't even remember what the title of it was, but the professor had just returned and came back with a whole bunch of slides. And so they're real places, <laughs> real people in real time that experience this. And I think it's important for us to remember that. But here's a, here's a couple of facts uh, about your churches. Ephesus probably had a population of around 200 to 250,000 people. Now, you were just a little tiny house church among that vast number of people. It was a major port city. It was home to the provincial, to the provincial governor and uh, also a, the major temple that was devoted to the goddess Artemis and to the emperor. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. You had all of that right in your backyard. Living with that. All right? Where, where is Smyrna? Smyrna, you had a population of 75 to 100,000 people. It was a, a port city. You can see where Smyrna is right there. Uh, famous for its beauty and its long-standing loyalty to Rome. It had a thriving imperial cult. An imperial cult meant that they worshipped the emperor. So, Polycarp was killed. What's that? <laughs> Bad joke. <laughs> I said, long live the king. <laughs> oh, we have an accommodationist in the church. <laughs> well, we have to have a discussion. Okay. Um, Polycarp was killed in your city some years later, so because of his faithfulness to Jesus. So, okay. Pergamum, you had a population of uh, 120 to 180,000. You, you also had an, uh, an imposing acropolis in your city. Where is Pergamum? Pergamos, I guess it is in modern day language. There was a huge altar to Zeus there in Pergamum and a towering temple of the imperial cult there as well. Um, Thyatira, we, didn't, we don't know for sure what the population was, at least wasn't revealed in the book that I was reading. <laughs> uh, it was a city known for its trade guilds, probably uh, union, uh, union people, blue-collar, blue-collar town. Uh, Sardis, again, not sure what the population was, uh, an imposing um, rugged acropolis. I don't know, I mean, it must have been up on a, on a hillside there, I suppose. Where is Sardis there? Yeah, it wasn't right on the, uh, on the coast, but... Uh, it was it was it was invaded twice by a sneak attack, so it sort of uh, it had been humiliated. Um, Philadelphia, I always think it's interesting that one of the churches was Philadelphia because we have Philadelphia. Not don't know the population. It was a city of great Greek culture and deep devotion to Rome. Uh, Laodicea was a prosperous and self-sufficient city. Corey, anything to add in terms of the historical context of these cities that you saw today? Or? Um, only uh, when you talked about trade guilds. Yeah. Um, one, of the, one of the things about trade guilds is 
that a lot of times in order to work in one of those trades, whether it's like a blacksmith or uh, dye, you know, dyeing fabric or making fabric or whatever, you know, just about any kind of labor like that, um, you had to have you had to have membership in one of these trade guilds, and part of uh, membership in the trade guilds was uh, very much tied up with the imperial cult. So a lot of times the the initiation into them, and then like the ongoing uh, membership in them, was was um, basically uh, religious ceremonies um, in honor of the emperor or in honor of deities and things like that. So to be a member of one of those trade guilds. Um, you essentially had to be a part of the Imperial Cult. That's all. Okay. Very good. All right. So we'll take a, take a few minutes. Find find the address. Your the address to your church. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's bring ourselves back together. Stay together as your little church group, and then. Uh, uh, did they hear that out there? No Come on in. Come on in, you Laodiceans, you Philadelphians. We're the Philadelphians. Oh, the, Smurf, the, Smurf, the Smurfs. The Smurfs. Either enter or go back down in the 80s. Have a cookie. Grab a cup of coffee. Oh, maybe there's not coffee. All right. Well, let's hear what the let's hear what the churches have to say. So, Ephesus, you want to give us a little bit of a a brief uh, response to these categories here? Yeah. So it seemed like the Ephesians were, you know, known for good deeds and hard work and perseverance, but um, they had forsaken their first love. It seems like they were. We were seeing indications that perhaps they were leaning more into um, more into truth rather than grace, because it talks about you know testing apostles rather than blindly accepting them, which is a good thing. But um, but they may have fallen into more of the rules and less of the grace. That's how it came across okay. to us. Okay. Um, so their exhortation was to remember how far they'd fallen and then repent and do the things that they did at first. And if they did, they would have the right to eat from the tree of life. Okay. All right. How about the Smyr the Smyrnites? Okay. Um. They well. You want all that? Just a, a general. Well, just just yeah. You can, you can skip the first and the last one, but what's yeah. the description of Christ? What's the kind um, the description of Christ? He was the first and the last, and died and came to life. So it talks. So that shows his deity and his everlastingness, but also his humanity and the resurrection. Um, the condemnation, commendation was, yet you are rich. So there it says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. So they're doing something right. They're, they're rich in spirit, even though they're in a difficult situation. Um, condemnation... They're about to suffer. They could be put in prison. They're persecuted by not only the, the people um, that are loyal to the emperor, but also there's Jews that are living there that are probably yeah. Jews by blood, but not, and they're persecuting them specifically too. Double trouble. Yeah, slandering them. 
um, that sort of thing. So they're kind of getting it from all sides. <clears throat> Exhortation is to do not be afraid. Um, be faithful, even to the point of death. And they will be given the crown of life. Okay, very good. All right, Pergamum. <clears throat> Yeah, <laughs> okay. I'll turn it over to you. Uh, uh, it describes Jesus as the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword, um, the Word of God. The commendation is is that it seems in general they remained true to God's name, even though they live where Satan has his throne. And and they noticed um, we noticed that in the description of Pergamum, it had the altar to Zeus, and it was a big. Uh, had a big temple of the imperial yeah. cult, and so the throne of Satan could be either one yeah. or both of those, yeah. right? So even though you're in the heart of this, you remain true. But there actually mm-hmm. were some within the church who um, held to the teaching of Balaam and to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Um, and it describes specifically that they ate food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality, and I think um, eating food sacrificed to idols is, I think, kind of a symbol of accommodation to the, to the spirit uh, there. Uh, and, of, sec- of course, sexual immorality, we know what that is. Um, and then the teaching of the Nicolaitans, and I actually have done some reading on this, and nobody really knows what that is. <laughs> okay. But they, but, but, they, but they surmise that it has something to do with lawlessness um, or uh, amorality, um, that kind of thing. Uh, and so the challenge was to repent of these things, or else Jesus is going to fight against those in the church who are unfaithful. Um, and, and so I, what we were kind of wondering was, even though, even though he says that the church in general is faithful, there are those within the church who hold to these false teachings and false um, actions. Um, and it seems like maybe what he's saying is, is hey, you're not on top of this, uh, that you're tolerating these things happening within the church. Um, and so what does it mean to repent then? Probably to stop tolerating it uh, within the church. Um, and when you do, uh, oh, and actually there was, there was also, there was someone within the church who had been martyred and he names him by by, by name. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and if you remain faithful, if you repent and remain faithful, you will get hidden manna, which was supernatural sustenance or supernatural food. Uh, so even in the middle of, um, opposition, in the middle of, uh, persecution, that God will sustain you supernaturally. And you'll also get a white stone. Um, and, and Naomi looked this up. So <laughs> um, it, it symbolizes like purity, uh, a vote in, your, in one's favor, and a new identity. Um, so you'll receive a, a new name. Well, I'm hearing you know, some of those themes that we talked about at the end, that security, hope, discipleship. I mean, I heard that right Right there in that, you know, mm-hmm. security being offered, there's hope yeah. being offered, discipleship. So, okay. Thyatira. That's awesome. That's I'm you. not sure I'm going to summarize as well as everyone else has. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> um, our description of Christ was um, eyes are like blazing fire, feet are like burnished bronze. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and the commendation that we thought was, um, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, that you are not doing more than you did at first. Um, the condemnation is very, it's very harsh. Just, yeah, condemning Jezebel, anyone who's associated with her, you know, that her, what was it, her children, I'm sorry, I'm trying to find where I was here. Um, that she'll be, yeah, cast on a bed of suffering. Those that were committing adultery with her will also suffer intensely. She'll, her children will be struck dead. I mean, very... Mm. Not good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to be associated with um, And then the, the challenge, I'm just going to read a little bit in the challenge. Now I say to the rest of you, to, do, to you who do not hold on to her teaching, have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold you to what you have until I come. So, sort of like... Um, and then the promise was to the one who's victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Okay. Um. And um, Jezebel, help me, Corey, represents, is sort of a representation of accommodation. Is that, am I accurate? In well, I, that idolatry or? for sure. Idolatry. So idolatry yeah. would be, yeah. I think, yeah. accommodation. Yeah, yeah. okay. okay. Yeah. All right. Sardis. Right. So uh, the description of Christ, um, so ours is, uh, starts in Revelation 3. Um, it was verse 3. Um, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief in the night, and you will not know what time I will come to you, which is like he has authority to do... Um, which will get you like the commendation and condemnation. Um, so he has a lot of authority. And the commendation is in verse 4 you have, yet you have few people um, who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. So that's like you have some good people. And then the commendation you have some people who are not. Right? And that's in. We would say one and two. Um, yep. It's because they were telling him to wake up, um, strength, oh, yeah. you know. Yeah, wake up, strengthen what re remains. Remain. Yeah, yeah, the things that remain. Because um, it's about to, you know, you're about to die or fall on your deeds <clears throat> unfinished. So they're like, they're partially good, but you, you like, they're kind of on their way. We talked about how they were kind of um, secretly attacked twice. And so that we, you know, they were very, they didn't have very high confidence, and so they're kind of like, yeah. yeah, very shameful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually. But, but, but in, in this church, as you guys just <coughs> a sort of a mixture, too, of people that there yep. were some yeah. that were in, yep. which and is kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. And exhortation in verse 3, remember therefore what you have received and heard, hold fast and repent, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what time you will, I will come. Um, so that's his warning, like, yeah. repent. Yeah. 
the That's problem. interesting. He's going to come like a thief. Yeah. Like, yeah. like a sneak attack, right? Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That, yeah, I didn't make that connection. Yeah. And so that probably scared him even more. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not maybe again. That, maybe that's, not why, again. Maybe that's why it was like. Steve, right? Like, I would oh, not yeah, again. I bet it is. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Okay. Um, and then the promise. Five, the one who is victorious will like them be dressed in white. I will not blot out their name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. And that's like, you repent and you will be with me. Um, just like, you know, on the cross, the thief that, you know, was talking and saying, you know, he's, yep. Yeah. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And, and that's like, also the answer to the first question, yeah. too. Yeah. Right. And then the imitation, we're going to do that anyway. Okay. Because um, <laughs> it's good. So whoever has, <laughs> right, it's whoever has ears, let them hear um, what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, like, so we hear that a lot in the Bible. That we talked about sight also as a thing, so... Yeah, you're seeing, but are you really actually seeing? Which, in the video, we talked about he, what he heard and then what he saw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, moving along to the Philadelphians. Mm-hmm. Um, so the description of Christ is uh, holy and true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. Um... The commendation is, I know you have little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Mm-hmm. Um, there actually isn't a condemnation to the church itself. Um, although he does address, uh, or brings up the synagogue of Satan, as he calls it, um, people who call themselves Jews but aren't, um, and promises that uh, these people will see that Jesus has loved the church in Philadelphia. Um, the exhortation is just to hold fast to what they have. Um, and the promise is that they will be made a pillar in the temple of God and will never go out of it. And um, the name of God and the name of the city of God will be written on them. So kind of some of the context as, or as I was putting things together, it sounds like they're maybe being excluded from worship at the temples uh, by the Jews, mm-hmm. and so the promise, that, or the calling out that Jesus can open and close and no one can uh, undo, <coughs> and that they'll be allowed into and made a part of God's temple, is that although they're being excluded from worship now, yeah. God will admit them to worship forever. Yeah. Good. Cool. Yeah. All right. All right. And last but not least, the Laodiceans. <laughs> um, so what they describe about Jesus is a faithful true witness, source or ruler of God's creation. It's kind of a description of him. Um, for commendation, mm, it's shady at best. I mean, it's like I know your deeds, and then it goes really downhill for everyone. Good or not? You've done some stuff. <laughs> um, and so it, then it goes into you know being lukewarm, and then he's going to spit him out, and um, 
And then what they say about themselves is that I am rich and I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But then he's saying that actually, but they actually are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and, and naked. So not, not real good good news for them. Um, but then the exhortation is, you know, verses 18 and 19, it says, it's counseling them to buy gold refined by fire so that they can become rich, and, you know, be purified with the white clothes. Um, and so they, they're basically their nakedness can be covered um, and they can actually see. And then that they, they God rebukes those that he loves and disciplines those that he loves. And so that's kind of the um, exhortation or warning. Um, and then, you know, kind of the, the good news or whatever is basically that, that he's there standing at the door knocking. And, um, you know, if anyone hears his voice and opens the door, that he'll come in and eat with them and be with them. And so... Um, so they yeah. can turn back from there. Mm-hmm. Right. There their is ways. there is hope in the midst of yeah. um, this church that doesn't have a lot of good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you. Um, yeah, on that on that note of lukewarm, and this was, you know, this is directly from our, our book here, um, lukewarmness is not an ancient metaphor for indifference which I always thought that it was a metaphor for indifference. It's, it's more uh, referring to their self-sufficiency. Oh. It says lukewarm here means that they were so prosperous and supposedly self-sufficient as to be completely out of fellowship with Jesus. Well, and I think, I think the metaphor, I think maybe a, a more descriptive word would be room temperature, right? So, yeah. they, so yeah. they basically yeah. allowed themselves to get to the temperature of the room. Yeah. They live in a rich city, and so now they're buying into that mm. that idol of yeah. prosperity yeah. Yeah. because they, that so they basically have accommodated yeah. to the temperature of the of the city. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, I I, I, I wish we had uh, more time, I and mean, we are getting toward the eight o'clock hour here um, because I, I think it would be it would be good to hear from from you. Uh, I, I mean, you, you've looked at this and heard a lot of this, but to, to, to kind of bring it to, to where to where we are, um, and, and you know, even to think specifically about this church, the church that you're a part of. You know, Jerry, you're part of Open Door, Hannah. I always forget what's your, what's hometown the hometown church down in, in Bloomington, um, and, and and you know what's going on in our midst. What are some of the things that uh, are, are happening among us that are worthy of commendation, are perhaps worthy of condemnation, um, and what is, what is the challenge to us? You know, to, to put some some more modern words on these categories, um, Eugene Peterson has has a, a commentary, a devotional commentary on Revelation, and and he says about Ephesus, uh, and he's and he's trying to put it in in. Uh, to, to, to the church today, to the church in, in America, abandoning their first zestful love of Christ. That was the, that was the thing for Ephesus. To Smyrna, there really wasn't one. Uh, Pergamum was indifference to heresy. Uh, Thyatira was tolerance of immorality. Uh, Sardis is apathy. Philadelphia, there really wasn't, there really wasn't one. Uh, Laodicea, substitution of material riches for life in the spirit. Um, you know, so again, a little bit more current kind of uh, words, I guess you might say. But but anybody really? I mean, do you have do you have any thoughts as you as you think about 
and, and you don't have to make it as specific as Toway Park. I mean, it'd be great if you did, if you've been here a long time. And maybe even more in general about, you know, the church in America. What do you think you see that is pertinent to, to the church in America today? What Corey said about the room temperature feeling about, like, kind of trying really hard to blend in. Kind of, I don't know, that seems yeah. to hit home a lot. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, you think about the the influence of a of a church like Willow Creek and, 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 and positive influence, but you know they 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 brought into the context of or into the uh, the glossary of, of church growth uh, seeker sensitive, you know, and again we shouldn't be, but that that was an attempt to to make it more palatable, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of that, that that's happening. Yeah, there's, there's I just feel like that in my own personal life too, of like Absolutely. growing up in a secular public high school, like mm-hmm. trying to, I don't I know, soften it. what I believe in order to not be yeah. persecuted. <laughs> yeah, yeah kind of like yeah. to be Absolutely. thought of as a weirdo. Right. Like, here's here's the good things about what I believe, the things mm-hmm. that we agree on instead of where we disagree. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I think um, that there are churches out there that um, have drifted away from Scripture, that they're trying to accommodate everyone and not sticking to what we believe to be true. And that for some, it that may rub them the wrong way, you know, um, but uh, you can have a conversation with people and kind of explain where you're coming from, you know, um, but I think that's, that happens, you know, that um, scripture is being watered down um, instead of being lifted up. I grew up in Methodist Church, and what I loved about it is they really want to reach out, and they really want to be as inclusive as possible. And I'll never forget, we were at a church meeting, and uh, one of the ushers, I think, well, he's a relative of mine, and, you know, he ran the, the municipal down, downtown, but he, he said, I'll never forget this, because, you know, we're trying so hard to be, you know, relate to people. But he goes, I'm kind of trying to figure out, like, what do we actually believe, you know? Yeah. It's like, I'm kind of, I'm kind of, I don't exactly know, can somebody tell me? And so I love that reaching out thing. And so it's it's hard, it's all, you know, it's either you're really defined and then, you know, you exclude people or you're kind of that other way. And so that's where I came from, you know. But I like the reaching out. I do. Yeah. So just to kind of define it more clearly, that's what I'm trying yeah. over, over the years. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel that Wake Park and then Grace Point, which is one of the sister churches in South Dakota, Brookings, South Dakota, does a really good job of outreach mm-hmm. and encouraging people to come to church, mm-hmm. but then educating them <clears throat> on what it means to be a, a 
follower of Christ mm -hmm. versus trying to be inclusive of everybody and then mm -hmm. just letting them be, be almost like a cancer within the church mm -hmm. and tear it apart. Mm -hmm. In Way Park, like everybody's, the faith of this church is unlike anything I've ever been in. Mm -hmm. And just a really true, very authentic welcoming in but then yet holding people accountable yeah. and that's because that's what I've experienced yeah. is it's not just like I come to church and, and see the people it's mm -hmm. like Holly is like nagging at Kevin you need to do this you need to be a part of this you need to be and then before he makes me feel guilty I'm like oh, I'm like I'll be there but it's great when I want to hang out with you That I don't feel shamed because of what I do, but I feel like I, I feel like I'm responsible because it's also my responsibility as as a Christ follower, you know, as a Christian. So it's it's not enough to make me feel bad about myself or to shame me like my like my old family church was. It was all gloom and doom. You're going to hell, so you know, so forget it. What does it matter anyway? It's more like no, no, no. There's this other part of it that. You were kind of taught, but not really in the way that yeah. that Pastor Corey teaches us. It's yeah. like, you know, there's this part. You, you did this, or you have did this, or you are doing this, but at the same time, there's growth that's happening. Mm -hmm. And it might be just little bits, little sprouts, mm -hmm. but it's it's where you do something that isn't quite right, and you're like, yeah, that doesn't feel right anymore. Mm -hmm. Where yeah. before, you just did it because you wanted to fit in, or, or whatever. Yeah. So... I don't know. Yeah. I agree. Hats off to this church and what you guys are doing. Yeah. It might seem like you're growing slowly, but the but the impact that you're making is great. Mm -hmm. Especially for those of us that have joined maybe in the last mm -hmm. year, two, three, four, five years. Wow. It's it's impactful. Mm -hmm. It might be slow, but again, your reach is big. Mm -hmm. yeah. So love and tolerance are pretty hard hard things. Mm -hmm. Especially when the word and is there instead of the word or. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. So, and I guess what I'm driving at is to piggyback on Gary and Cammy's tolerance. So what is tolerance? And this is going to be an open-ended question. I'll just leave it hanging. But... <laughs> um, what do we believe? What do I believe? If I don't believe the same thing Holly believes, can I tolerate her? Yeah. I'm sorry, Holly. <laughs> <laughs> you were just sitting right there. I know. I, <laughs> I was just looking. Easy charges. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, if, if I don't believe certain politics that are going on, which, you know, I don't, and everybody doesn't. Not everybody believes everything about all the politics going on. So, but we can... Can we uh, still show love and respect and tolerate? You know, to, you know, tolerate. What is that? How far does that you know go? Mm -hmm. um, so Yo, that's, that's political. That's an <laughs> open-ended yeah. question. So I'm just I'm gonna leave that hanging. But as far as as far as the Bible project um, video, which was great. I wanted to 
point out one thing I just wrote down about it is um, they use the word faith in terms of our faith and faithfulness to God a lot in the video, early on in the video. And I don't know if I got this exactly right, but it wasn't until nearly the end where they mentioned repentance in chapter 9, or excuse me, not, yeah, 9 dash, chapter 9, 2021. That's what I wrote down. Um, but actually, in the first few chapters of Revelation, the word repentance is meant, just repent is mentioned a lot. So I, what I, I, I read the chapters this morning, and repent from the human side was uh, more of a key to me than I mean it's it, that's our faith that expresses our faith in God but um, it was it's be, we repent because of God's faithfulness and love for us so, yeah. that's just a comment on it yeah. um, I, I think this this is a good uh, summation quote from the, the author of this, this book that does bring in some of the points that you guys have just made here in this, in this conversation. But, uh, he says at the end of this chapter on the analysis of the three churches, or seven churches, uh, based on our analysis, we might say that Christ desires a church characterized by the fullness of orthodoxy, which would be right doctrine, right belief, and orthopraxy, which would be the putting into action of that belief, faithfulness, and fearlessness, devotion to Jesus, but not to the state, and a preference for the poor rather than the rich. So that's Gorman's line. And then, and then I love it that he, uh, he quoted a, an old hymn, and I thought, well, we could sing it. Probably not. How about just you? <laughs> yeah, but one line from God of grace and God of glory. Cure thy children's warring madness. Bend our pride to thy control. Shame our wanton, selfish gladness. Rich in things and poor in soul. Grant us wisdom. Grant us courage. Let, lest we miss thy kingdom's goal. Lest we miss thy kingdom's goal. Mm-hmm. That's a oh, yeah, that's pretty rich mm-hmm. there. So. Yeah. Well, Lord, uh, help us uh, as we go out tonight to uh, to be encouraged <clears throat> as we are reminded of uh, the security and the hope and uh, the the leading that Jesus brings to us at every moment of our of our lives. Help us to lean into that. Help us as we uh, as we wake up in the morning uh, to wake up <clears throat> with a reminder of uh, we are your children, we are your church, uh, we have your hand on our lives, and and to, and to live in the strength and the and the courage and the fearlessness of that as we go about the tasks of our day. Thank you for this good gathering of people and the good conversation that we've had tonight. In Jesus' name, Amen. 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 Thanks, Bill.